So we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Um, I just found out in between services that we've got some brothers and sisters down in San Diego who are getting lit up on fire because of what God's bringing. So I just want to extend to all you San Diegoans, San Diegoans, however you want to call yourself, we love you and we're thankful to take part in this with you. Also, I just heard that Denmark, for whatever reason, we can speculate, is not getting these videos into their country because of trademark laws. Interesting, right? So I'm going to pray again because you just can't do that enough. Pray with me really quickly. Lord, we thank you and ask that you'd bless our brothers and sisters in San Diego and those across the globe who are taking part in this with us. Um, Father, we want to lift up to you, Denmark, that they would hear and receive your word. Whether it's from us or other places, Lord, it does not matter. They need and want you. Bring yourself, Lord, and I pray that you would raise up and destroy the walls that, that prevent this word, not just now, but weeks to come, your word and your spirit from touching and covering and pouring on and loving and changing and transforming your people in Denmark. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I kind of adjusted my mic, if you couldn't tell, guys, in the back. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, but before we go there, I'm going to recap from verse 13 last week. Tonight, or today's message is the Word and the Spirit, part 2, because you just can't get enough, and it always comes back to that. Strength and grace. The Word and Spirit, strength and grace. Look at verse 13 with me. Chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 13, Paul writes, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Just as Paul's been reminding Timothy of the two things that are absolutely vital to living this life and enduring to the end, might I add, I feel compelled to remind all of us again of this same truth. We must live by His Word. His Word. We live by His Word. I didn't add anything to it because there's nothing else. And if you're thinking, well, what about the Spirit? Uh-huh. That's both and. I'll get there in a little bit. We must live by His Word. That's what you live by. You might conduct yourself and operate within the confines of the American government, that's all good and well, but you live by the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God, and God is love, 1 John 4, 8. It's God's Word. It's God's Word that's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. It's God's Word that has the power to carry and uphold our lives, Hebrews 1.3. And it's God's word that revives and comforts us. God's word, which by implication, and I do mean this implication, anything shy of or not God's word does not have the power to truly revive and comfort you. Psalm 119.50 and 76. And it's, it's God's word. Jesus said, the living word of God, who then said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. 
Think about that for a second. <laughs> I'm not even talking about the country we live in. I'm talking this whole little planet and everything in the known and unknown universe will pass away. I believe that to my core because God's word says it and God's word is true. Jesus goes on though and he says, but my words will not pass away. I said it last week, there are the kids yelling, <laughs> I said it last week. Yeah, thanks wife. Thanks, Cam. Our hope and confidence has to be in the word, has to be in Jesus. Anything short of that's going to disappoint us. It's going to leave us high and dry. We must live by his word, not the sword. Everything else is subject to the word of God. Everything else. Remember, it was God's word that inspired our forefathers in writing the Constitution, not the other way around. The word of God, that's it. That's what my life hangs on. Though this world changes through turbulent times, my Savior does not, and so my confidence doesn't. Remember also that Jesus was innocent under the Mosaic law, under the Constitution, you could say, of Israel, the law that God himself gave, gave to Moses, yet it didn't keep Jesus' enemies from murdering him. More than that, not only did it not keep Jesus from suffering and dying on the cross, it was God's promised word that actually led him there. Isaiah 53. The word is Jesus. At the end of the day, this is not the word. Because when heaven and earth pass away, should my Bible endure to that point, this thing will be burned up. But the word not. Why? Because the word's not a thing. It's not ink on a page. It's a person. The word goes beyond ink and pages. God's word is the highest authority because it's Jesus. Side note. There's ministries that I oversee here at the bridge, and when someone has an issue, a concern, or a question, and they come to me, and they don't get the answer they want, you know where they go? They go to Rick. They go, sometimes, many times, they just go right past me, and they go straight to Rick. I'm like, what gives? Why? Because we want to go to the highest authority. In these times, in this country, no matter what's going on in your life, go to the highest authority. You have access to go straight to the top. God's word is the highest authority because it's Jesus and it's who we've been called to live for. I don't have a relationship with my Bible. Some of you are like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It'd be pretty weird, right? You catch me talking and interacting with this wherever I go as if it was a friend with me. Yet many of us make that mistake. When I say we live by the word, I mean we live by the word. Before you and I had Genesis through Revelation, the word was still here, always here. John 5, 39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, his, some of his greatest opponents, he took the time to share this truth with them. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. 
and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus, with his worst enemies, still took the time to give them the opportunity to have life. That's the love and the mercy, the compassion of an all-loving God at work. Our lives rise and they fall by God's word. To live life, we must possess it personally. At the same time, and in the same hand, we must live by the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking to a bunch of folks who've been, who've been coming to the bridge for a long time, and man, we esteem this highly, and so we should. But I can't necessarily speak for all of you, but for me, I never question this, but man, when you start to get into the things of the Spirit, it's a little uncomfortable sometimes. The Spirit does what? How does this work? I don't understand. Folks, if we receive the Word of God, we receive the Spirit of God. And if we're not taking a red pen to the Bible, we don't get to take a red pen to the Spirit and how He functions either. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Just as it's vital to life itself that we personally possess and live by the very word of God, it's of equal importance and value and necessity that our lives depend on the Holy Spirit, hang on the Holy Spirit. Think about this, Abraham in Genesis didn't have a written word from God. Who was it guiding him? The Spirit of God was moving in Abraham's life. It's the Word and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the Word of God active in us to begin with. John 16, 13, Jesus' words, not mine, he said to his apostles, but when he, that's the Spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose, he will reveal to you what's to come. Side note, if you're wondering what's coming up in this next week or what's coming up in November, what this country's gonna look like, I urge you first and foremost, again, go to the highest authority. Don't waste a ton of energy on what's happening through the news outlets. It will spin you out. You'll be left in a dazed and pretty queasy. But if you go to the Spirit of God through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, He promises to disclose to you, to give you vision, answers, and insight to the future that the news will never give you. Now, granted, he might give you answers that you weren't looking for. And funny enough, the answers that you were looking for, you realize aren't important at all. We see that time and time again through the lives of people God inspired to write this book. If we don't live by God's spirit, then God's word is just ink on paper. It is just an intellectual religious exercise. And we're just a bunch of Pharisees trying to live the law instead of living by the divine ability of God's grace. You gotta have the spirit and the word. You gotta have the word and the spirit. They are inextricably bound. If all we have hope for is a textbook for life, then what a sad and empty existence. And we truly are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, most of all people to be pitied. It has to go beyond just this. 
Consider this fact that Jesus, the word of God, gave us the spirit of God. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. Remember, Jesus is saying, you guys search the scriptures, Pharisees, thinking that in these you get life. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken, Jesus says, to you are spirit and our life. Jesus not once ever plays down the role of the Spirit, and yet so oftentimes we do. I know I have. That's uncomfortable. I don't know how that works. I'm just going to keep that over there. You, can, you cannot know and you cannot follow Jesus, who is the Word of God, without His Spirit. You can know about Jesus, but you can't personally know Him without His Spirit. And you can't actually live and experience the Spirit of God without the Word of God. They are together. Trying to live only by the written word without the Spirit makes us Pharisees. Trying to live only by the Spirit without the word makes us emotional, experiential pagans. You gotta have both. You gotta be anchored in the word. And if you receive the word, means you gotta be willing to receive however he wants to function. According to his word, his Spirit at work in you, which is supernatural. It doesn't contradict human logic, but it takes us beyond what we know and understand because he's supernatural. Otherwise, he's not God. Trying to live only by one will produce a striving soul, not a strong spirit. The Spirit of God inspired the Word. You cannot have one without the other. I know I'm beating a dead horse, but it is intentional. Matthew 1.20, angel, an angel is speaking to Joseph soon to be the husband of Mary, and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's pregnant, and they haven't been together. So he's like, I don't know if I can get into this. And the angel said, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that brought the conception of Jesus to life in our lives, in our world. And so this is why Paul keeps telling Timothy to live by the word of God and rely on God's spirit. Without them, Tim ain't never going to be able to carry out his calling. It won't deny his identity, but I have seen many a brother or sister in the faith, and I have experienced it myself, where I'm working so hard to get through the word, and when hard times come, I start to lose hope. Because as much as I love the Word of God, I'm not just letting His Spirit reveal it to me. I'm trying to get it. I'm trying to work it out. you got to have the Spirit to make sense of the Word, which is why so many folks who read the Word of God out of their own strength without receiving Jesus can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to the natural man. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 Natural man can't appraise, can't appraise or value supernatural spiritual things, but a spiritual man can value, which is to say women also, can value and appraise all things, natural and supernatural. You gotta have the spirit. So, with that said, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. There's a lot here, so I'm gonna actually be breaking these, these verses up within themselves. 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul writes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's just look at that first part. You therefore, my son, be strong. Therefore, because of. 
Because of what? Because of what Paul has already written to Timothy. Timothy's a loved son, 2 Timothy 1-2. Timothy has a sincere faith, for chapter 1, verse 5. Timothy has the gift of God's spirit, chapter 1, verse 6. Timothy's been saved and called into Jesus' life by Jesus, chapter 1, verse 9. Timothy has the sound words, a.k.a., also known as, healthy and true teaching of Jesus, verse 13. A lot of churches are lacking this. And last but not least, Timothy has the Holy Spirit living in him. He has the essential and unique gift that the Holy Spirit is doing in him. And he has the Holy Spirit living and abiding in him, verse 14, who is guarding Timothy. Because of these things, Paul writes to Timothy, be strong. Paul says, be strong in the grace in Jesus. But I don't know about you, as I read that, it begs a question, a huge question. What does that even mean, be strong? How do you be strong? Ephesians 6.10, matter of fact, Keep your thumb there in 2 Timothy. We're going to camp out just a little bit in Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. So if you got your Bible, bust it out. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. So there's the object that the church in Ephesus is, is supposed to be strong in. And in the strength of His might. The object is God. Being strong in Him. We already, if you read that verse, you already begin to get a sense that this strength isn't achieved. It's not something that we create. We can't make it. We can't produce it. This strength is something we receive. We receive it. That's how you be in it. You receive it. But then the question still is how? How do we be strong? How do I receive this? Okay. Interestingly enough, and not coincidentally, verse 10, it says, be strong in Ephesians 6. 2 Timothy says, be strong. It's the same language in the Greek. Same language, exactly the same. Be strong could be translated better, find your strength in. But I'm already getting ahead of myself. Let's read verses 10 through 17. Paul's writing it in this book, uh, a letter to the church that's in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, today Turkey. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In a culture, I was just thinking this as I was driving here, politics has become like a religion, a spirituality in this country. I just want to remind us that our fight is not with the presidential candidates. Our fight's against powers that, realm, that live in the heavenly realm. And those who have not placed their faith and dependence on and in Jesus are manipulated puppets by the enemy. It's the devil's schemes. Therefore, verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, here it is, what are we putting on? Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Think about that for a second. Shields, how do they extinguish something on fire? We'll get there. Some of you may already know. And then finally, up to this point, everything that we've heard being put on clothing is a defensive item. But verse 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Spirit is the Word. The Spirit inspired the Word. This is why we need to live by both. To live by one, and if you would say you live by one or you know someone who lives by one, I would go, I don't know if they fully received Jesus. You gotta have both. It only comes that way. That being said, be strong in the Greek, I'll see if I can pronounce this right, is endunamo'o, which is the picture of putting on clothes. Endunamo'o. Be strong means put on. Put on. Receive and dress with what's already been, been given. So you and I aren't creating it. We're not making it. We're just putting it on. What are we putting on? Girded with truth. Belt. Loincloth. Back in the ancient world, if you were getting ready to hightail it somewhere, you pulled your knickers up really high, up, up as high as you could, so you got free range of motion. I've got a long torso and some pretty stubby legs, and no matter what shorts I get, I always tend to want to like pull them up like a skirt so that they're out of my way. Gird your loins with the truth. That's a picture of being prepared with the truth, which means you got to have the truth and already be in the truth to be prepared with it in the first place. Jesus is the truth. So the words of Jesus are truth. John 17, 17, Jesus, who is God's manifested in the flesh, revealed word of God said, praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What else do we put on? the breastplate of righteousness. Now, you could do studies on the word righteousness and what that means all in itself, but for today's purposes, just equate righteousness with rightness. To be righteous is to be right with God. God receives you. Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, so in case we're trying to work out our righteousness, Paul makes it clear, to the one who does not work, but believes in Jesus, who justifies the ungodly. That's me, folks. That's anyone here who's received Jesus. We are, apart from God, ungodly. Make sense? His faith is credited as righteousness. We're given rightness with God by our trust in Jesus and what he did for us. Do you kind of see what I'm laying out? Trying to be strong, it's just something that you got to put on. It's not something you got to make happen. You just got to receive what's been given. Now, the question is, what did Jesus do for us? I'm going to say something that you don't hear, unfortunately, too much in churches, but you'll hear it here because it's the truth. Jesus saved us from hell, which is eternal separation from the love and presence of God. Hell is horrible because God's presence, his character is absent. He sees it. He witnesses it. 
But people who go there don't go there because God said, I don't like you, you go there. It's because they say, I don't like you, God. That's the default position. Jesus came so that we can experience the presence of God always and forever and be satisfied on him. He is good. He is loving. He is truth. He is power. If you want that, you want Jesus. And if you get Jesus, you get God. What else do we put on? It says shod with the gospel. It's the picture of binding footwear, putting on footwear that's bound to you, that prepares you to resist. Interestingly enough, we're called to resist the devil and he will flee. We have such an offensive mentality because oftentimes we're trying to do this. We're trying to win the war. I said at first service, I think it bears worth repeating again, if you know anything about history with the Roman soldiers, a lot, most of their, most of what they were equipped with was for the sake of enduring the pounding. They'd lock in, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but they'd lock in, prepped, they'd have cleated sandals that bound up to their knees. These guys were equipped, solid, together, and when the enemy was shouting their heads off and then charging, you know what they do? Stand ready and silent. They would just stand. When the wall of enemy hit them, they would resist. They literally beat their enemy by resisting their enemy. They wore the enemy down. That was one of their biggest offensive weapons. They had the endurance to go to the end. And they were united, they had structure and order and they did it together. Thousands of men operating as if it was one man. The Romans went up, some, uh, up against some really bad dudes. The Gauls were some big, giant people, and these were warrior people. These Romans, they went through some incredibly tough training, but the strength of the Roman army was based on their ability to follow orders and to do it together. They were all on the same page. Again, getting way ahead of myself. These Sandals had metal cleats on the soles, shod with the gospel. That's the picture. You get the gospel, the preparation of the gospel to resist what's to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, as of first importance what I also received. If you want to share the gospel, or if you know the gospels by the, the means that people are going to get saved, do you know it well enough to share it? because I cannot give away what I don't personally already have. Do you possess it personally? Does it fuel and motivate and stir up and guide and influence your daily lives? Is that how effective the gospel is in your life? The more effective the gospel is in you and to you, the more effective it will be in your life as you share it with others. He goes on and says, what I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel that we live by. Jesus lived, he suffered, he was murdered, he was killed on the cross, willingly buried, and on the third day raised. Resurrection. That's the gospel we live and die by. When Jesus left to go back to the Father, all except for one of his apostles, all died earthly deaths. Many of them, not so great. Crucified upside down, heads lopped off, lit on fire, the list goes on. 
They died for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because they had the confidence of life. That doesn't make sense, Jake. Just hang with me. We prepare ourselves to stand in the good news that Jesus died for our sins based on the promises God has given. We put it on and we wear it. We own it. It's mine. People can say what they want, but it's mine. It's personal. It's not based on our knowledge or our strength. It's based on His. This is our good news because if we trust in Jesus and what He did, we're given the power of resurrection. This is where it gets maybe funky for some. They believe that Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. He had wise words. But you're telling me he came back to life after three days? Literally? Yes. Both in this life and forever, we have the power of resurrection if we trust in him. That's the gospel. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, 13. If there's no, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is vain. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ's been raised. And if, Christ's, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Our faith has to go beyond ink on pages. It's got to be real and true. The Word of God is living and active. He goes on and says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith, is worthless. your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. You are still not made righteous with God. Everything hung not just on Jesus' life, death, burial, but on his resurrection. Jesus didn't come to be a good man and martyr himself for us like he came to make a movement. Jesus isn't about a movement. He's about a kingdom that lasts forever an eternal kingdom. And God has been promising it with the Spirit inspiring people through the ages to write about this coming kingdom. We got so much to hope for, so much to look forward to. He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we're of all people most to be pitied. It's not enough to come to church Pray a prayer, maybe get a certificate. Hey, look, I gave my life to Jesus. I have seen a lot of brothers and sisters, and I myself have from time to time made this mistake, slipped into this mentality like, I'm saved, okay, now what's next? If you didn't listen to Pastor Les's teaching, he talked about saving, salvation. You are saved, and you're being saved. I wasn't married once on September 18th of 2010. I'm being married. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. Marriage ain't a one-day thing. It's an everyday thing for as long as you both shall live. We treat salvation like it's just now. There's nothing afterward. If that's the truth, then we are to be pitied. Do you and do I live like the gospel is just a religious way of making us feel good? Or do we actually believe and look forward to resurrection. Jesus' apostles died miserable deaths because they believed in whole, heart, everything in the resurrection. Why? Because they saw their master, their savior, the captain of their faith raised to real life. He wasn't just spiritual. He said, give me something to eat and something to drink. I'll prove to you that it's who I am. He ate it and drank it in front of them. 
He was raised literally back to life. That's the power of the gospel if we believe. Next, shield of faith. We put on a shield of faith, trusting in Jesus and what he says. You guys see my emphasis constantly? It's all about him. It's all about what he says. It's all about what he does. It's all about what he's done. It's all about what he wants to give. It's in him. Trusting in Jesus and what he says will allow us to not just block, but actually extinguish the fiery arrows of the enemies. And like I said before, get out of your head whoever you think your enemies are on this earth. Might be some political faces. They're not the enemy at the end of the day. Our enemy is spiritual and real and powerful. And what we see happening in our country is a result of the spiritual, not the physical. The physical is affected by the spiritual, which is more real than the grass under your feet right now. But oftentimes we don't live like it. That is the reality. Roman soldiers would soak their shields. First of all, these shields, back in their heyday, at the height of Roman military prowess, these shields were big. They would cover most of the body. And these guys, as companies, as units, would have to go out and march with these things. They would weigh anywhere from 50 to 80 pounds, depending on what historian you read from. That's how they started out. Then they'd take their shields and they'd soak them in water. Why? Because their shields were made of wood. Can you imagine how heavy that was? But the reason they were able to carry that and hold it and do it in unison is because they practiced it every day. It was a way of life. Is consuming the word of God a way of life for you? Is growing in his spirit, understanding and receiving his spirit and walking by the power of his spirit a way of life for you? The more you do it, the stronger you become. But it's gotta be a daily practice. They'd soak these shields in water so that when they locked shields, the fiery arrows, the darts, whatever the fiery projectiles were that hit the shields, it wouldn't just block these arrows, it would extinguish the fire. It put out the flame of the fire. It put out the enemy's fiery attack. Our faith is literally dependent on God, who he's been revealed to us by his own written word. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself, the water. We see water throughout scripture. Water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. They came with their shield of faith and they soaked it in the water. Your faith is imbued with power by his spirit. But the, the amount to which you soak your life in the presence of his spirit is gonna be proportional to your ability to resist the fiery arrows of the enemy. It's a spiritual and military practicality. It's just a reality. How much are you soaking? Because that enemy's not gonna fire one volley. As we've seen in the last five months, COVID hit. Okay, well, just give it a few weeks. And then it turned to months. And then riots. And then protests. And we're like, what's going on? We shouldn't be surprised if we're people who live by the word of God. He already promised these things would come. We don't have to be surprised. The Romans weren't surprised. They were prepared to take on the enemy. They were able to resist and stand up against and endure to the end. Soak your faith in his presence by the word and the spirit of God. The faith, this faith dependence in the Lord enables us to shield ourselves 
against the steady reign of temptations. You got temptations? Only the Word and the Spirit of God are going to help you stave off those temptations, starve out and extinguish the temptations. Temptations to fear, bitterness, anger. And this one, this one socked me in the gut. Temptation of division that could break up the unity of the church. The shield of faith helps us to stay unified with each other, but we got to soak in the Spirit. We got to receive His Word. Pick up your faith, lock it together with each other. There are times where my faith is waning. That's why, that's why Paul in 2 Timothy, you can go ahead and turn back to that. That's why Paul uses in verse 4 the metaphor of a soldier. He's pulling on the picture of the present-day soldier in his time, which is a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier by themselves couldn't win a battle, but united together, unstoppable, as we've seen through history. Unstoppable. We fight together, not against each other. Remember that. Lock your faith together. Soak together in His Spirit. Live and die by His Word, because it's the only thing in this life that's going to give us confidence and power to do so. It's been said, some, all men die. Only some truly live by the Word, by the Spirit. Last but not least, helmet of salvation and sword of the Spirit. His salvation protects us, and it's His salvation. Those of you who might be questioning whether or not you're still saved because you made a mistake, it's not based on you to make yourself saved. It's based on Him. Do you trust in that? Are you stoked up on Him? Are you dependent on Him? Salvation protects us, and it's His salvation. Our, our saving grace doesn't come from info on the news or social media. That only gets you so far down the line. And like I said, first service, I think all of us to some extent have experienced it. We get spun up and wrapped up pretty quick with the news. And it doesn't actually build up our faith. It doesn't equip us with confidence and comfort. It make, we, we go from being united soldiers to individual animals who got their back up against a corner that are snapping at everything because we're insecure about everything happening. That's not a soldier of Christ. Isaiah 11:4. With the righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness of the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The word. I don't know if you young kids still hear this, if they still talk about it, but you remember the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. It was the Word of God that spoke creation into existence. It is the spoken Word. It is the written Word. It is the Word of God that's important. It's the Word, or the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips, He will slay the wicked. What kind of slaying's going on? This is prophetic of what we see revealed in the book of Revelation 19.15. Jesus comes back, and He is coming back. From His mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and his, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The Word of God. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. These are the two things that are 
that are our offensive weapons for our lives in this life, in this fight. If you didn't know you're in a fight, you are. You're in a fight. But you're not in a fight with each other. And you're not in a fight with the governmental powers, as wicked as some might be. Our fight is not against, against flesh and blood. All this to say, we can't make ourselves strong any more than we can save ourselves. In Campus Crusade for Christ, a college campus ministry I was a part of when I was going to college, they taught us something in sharing the gospel called the four spiritual laws. I believe it's from this method that I was taught. They gave a, a metaphor Someone who's like, well, I can be good enough. I'm a good person. Long story short, all have fallen short of the glory of God. I didn't say this first service. I'll say it second service. Imagine if I gave you a platter of brownies. Really good, top notch, Mar Martha Stewart style. But I went, sorry, my cat confused the batter with the sandbox, and there might be a little bit of my cat in there if you catch my drift. But it's really good. Want some? No! then why would we expect God to ex accept anything less? He demands holiness and perfection. And if you think it's unrealistic and unfair, that's why Jesus comes. That's why Jesus. Jesus is the reason. We need Jesus. We can't save ourselves. You, you got a better chance making a, a one-time hop from California to Hawaii than you do of making yourself right in the eyes of God by yourself. It's not possible. So what do we do? We let Jesus clothe us in his strength. We put him on. What I just read through Ephesians. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride is the church. Verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteousness that clothes the church isn't because the church is all that in a bag of chips. If that were the case, then chapter 1, verse 15, Paul wouldn't have told Timothy, everyone in Asia has left me. I'll defer to what I said last week. Don't put your hope in the church. Put your hope in Jesus. We are the church, but I'm not hanging my life on you. We do it together hanging on Jesus who hung for us. Where does the righteousness come from? Him. We make ourselves ready by clothing ourselves with what he gives us, the righteousness that only comes from Jesus. The church makes herself ready by receiving the righteousness from Jesus. Jesus is what gives us the rightness with God. It's all a gift from Jesus. You know, grace. Here's your first point. We're going to be here for four more hours. I'm just kidding. Here's your first point. Wow, no one laughed. You guys all right? Okay, some of you are like, it's really hot out here, Jake, and I'm from Washington. Okay, sorry. Put on God's strength. That's the first point. How? By his word and his spirit. Be absorbed in his word. As you let his word affect your life, you live by it, you'll understand the word. You'll be in relationship with the word. And the word of God gives you spirit and life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the second part of verse 1. In the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Before we finish verse 1, I think it's worth taking a little look at what grace is. 
because I think grace is largely misunderstood by the church. Hear me out. I'm going to say some things that you might be like, what? I might be violating your tradition, but I promise you it's in correlation with the word of God. And I'll prove it. I give you verses. Grace isn't forgiveness. That's called mercy. Forgiveness is an act of mercy. Being merciful isn't forgiveness. It's compassionate. So let's make this distinction right here and now. Mercy is bigger than just forgiving. Forgiveness comes as a result of God's compassionateness, compassion towards us. Grace helps us have and be compassionate. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith in Jesus. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. No one gets to go to heaven and be like, yeah, you should have seen the way Jesus just talked about me. He knows I'm all that. Without me, I don't know if Jesus' kingdom could stand. No! Jesus' kingdom stands with or without Jacob Allen Barksdale. I just, just said my middle name, students. Oh, my goodness. Grace is like, oh, he said it. Okay. <laughs> grace, we're talking about grace. Well, I didn't, I didn't make that up. Okay. By grace. Grace is, a, is received as an unearned gift from God. We understand that who have grown up in the church. It is an unearned gift from God. It can't be achieved. It is only received. So what does grace do when we trust in Jesus? I'm looking at the function of grace. What does grace do? I'll tell you this right now. I am not going to be able to do hardly any justice to helping us really plow the depths of grace because grace, I believe, is going to take eternity to understand. If you go out on Sharps Park, that point that looks over the water, and you see the vastness of the blue ocean, that's just the surface. That's just the part of grace we see. Then you plumb the depths we can't even see. That's how big and how wide and how enormous God's grace is. So what does grace do when we trust in Jesus. If grace saves us, it's by faith that grace saves us, then what does that mean about what grace is? Ephesians 1.6, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Grace from and by Jesus is the divine gift of his power to save us from hell. Grace is the divine ability of God to transform us, to save us, to empower us, to equip us. Grace is huge, and it has a multiplicity of function. It's all done according to his grace. Philippians 2.13, let's go a little deeper with this. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Grace is God's divine and supernatural ability to will and to work. You're dealing with temptations you can't seem to beat? Absorb him. Let this bring you closer to him. Receive what he is teaching you and apply what Jesus says from his word and his spirit will do it. His grace is the thing that's going to help you beat that temptation. Well, I thought I did before, but it came back. Because it's a battle. 
just like we've been talking about. You have to endure the battle. It's not like, slash, yeah, I beat him. You got a nasty gall standing behind that one who's coming at you. That's a war, folks. It's not done like that. And this is a war that's lasted the span of human existence. It's a long one. How are you going to have the strength to endure it? Hang with me. Romans 12, 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace, there it is, according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. Grace is the expression, guys, of God's power to do in us and for us what we can't do on our own. And grace is the divinely powerful gift given to us. It is a gift, not just to save, but grace also empowers us in unique and various ways. I look on a hillside, and through the camera lens, at everybody, and nobody looks the same. It's a mystery to me. It's like we're all individuals. None of you look the same. None of you are the same. And God's grace equips and is unique to each and every one of you to fulfill what God has called you to do based on the way he's created you. He's created you to live by the power of his spirit. So receive it. Receive him. Just like the word of God is not a it, it's a him. The spirit of God is not some cosmic force. It's been said many times, this isn't the Star Wars thing. The Spirit is a person. To empower us in unique and diverse ways, to equip us with different abilities to, to perform the duties and responsibilities that He's given us to do as His children. Pastor Les has said this to me many times, and I'm sure some of you have heard this too. He wants you to get God so much and so deep and so bad because he knows whatever you get from God, he gets it. I want you to get this because whatever God gives you, I benefit. Why? Because I ain't in this fight alone. I'm together. I'm locked. It behooves me to make sure you are spiritually strong because your strength, my strength, our strength, shoulder to shoulder, depending on his word by the power of his spirit, is unstoppable. Students, young people, especially you, it's broken my heart over the years how young people are becoming disillusioned with the church. I want you to hear from Jesus' words that the church is his bride. The church has messed up people in it, but Jesus loves his bride. If you would expect Jesus to love you, warts and all, then we got to love each other the same way. Why? Because Jesus loves each other the same way. Again, not in my notes. Not surprising. All this to say, we got to build each other up. we got to lock our shields. We all collectively have to soak in His Spirit and receive His Word. Do your cross-training day in and day out individually and together. Do this together because His grace has empowered His church and get this, Jesus said, on this rock, the rock, the bedrock truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, on that rock of truth, I will establish my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome her. So guess what? You and I don't have to overcome it. He just gives us the power to do it. He already promised it. 
Grace is the free and unlimited supernatural resource of God to do in us and through us what we could never do on our own. And that's your next point. Our strength is in his grace by word and spirit. You hear a theme? Word and spirit, word and spirit, word and spirit. And just as a reminder, the pa this power, again, is received. It's not achieved. You don't accomplish it on your own. I can't. But depending on and trusting in Jesus, that's how we get it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. On to the next verse. You ready? Are, are you ready? All right. Okay. Just making sure. Woo. Okay. Look at verse 2 with me. The things from which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Real quick, if some of you ladies are like, man this and men that, where am I? Just so you know, that word men means anthropos, it means mankind. So ladies, you've been equipped with the ability to teach as well. I believe that Paul is speaking to Timothy specifically, calling him to raise up, to seek out men who are going to come alongside Timothy as he pastors the church. But the Spirit is not just for men, it's for men and women. For adults and little kids, he comes one and all. Now, look at here, look at this wording. Paul says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. What's he talking about? Where did this happen? Some think that the presence of many witnesses refers to Timothy's ordination. But I don't think so. Simply because first, according to the original Greek, it doesn't read that way. And secondly, to a simpleton Bakersfield boy, it doesn't read that way to me either. And I'm going to show you why I don't think what Paul is talking about is something what, that, that Timothy heard in a one-time event. Two reasons I'll give you. First, Paul taught a lot of things. If you read your New Testament, you'd know a lot of the New Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit through Paul. He taught a lot of things, guys over a span of years that Timothy was a part of. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. But Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him. This happened at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. We have in scripture distinctly three separate missionary journeys that Paul went out on. Timothy joined him at the beginning of the second one. We see from this record that Timothy got this stuff over time, not all at once. He lived and served with Paul. Second reason I don't think it was a one-time event, Timothy didn't study Paul in a message like I've already alluded to. Timothy soaked in. Timothy served alongside what he learned from Paul and with Paul. Point being, ministry is relational. Thank God, because if it wasn't, I probably wouldn't still be serving at the bridge. I'd be like, Jake, you're a nice guy, simple, but you know, you got a good heart, but dude, you just got too many blunders. It's time to ditch you, man. I haven't been chucked to the wayside like an object because... Our pastors and shepherds here understand that ministry is relational. There's ups and downs. There's grace and mercy for each other all together because that's the way Jesus works. 
Timothy has been soaking in and serving with Paul over the long haul. 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul writes, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. How can Timothy hear these things and follow these things in a one-time event when he says, followed, for example, patience and perseverance? That is not a one-time event. This is an ongoing thing. The word followed here in 2 Timothy 3.10, I'm going to try my hand at Greek again, parakolutheo, parakolutheo. Para, that's the first part of the word, means beside or next to. So this word followed in the Greek is made up of two words. The first part means beside or next to, and akolutheo, meaning to accompany, like a disciple. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.10, you have been next to me and you've accompanied me as I've gone following my example, serving with me. Furthermore, a disciple is a learner, a follower. It's not someone who just shows up in a classroom for a half hour or two. They live life together. Jesus' disciples, I'll go further, Jesus' disciples didn't learn from him in a day or at a single event what they were supposed to do after he left. They spent roughly three years with Jesus as he equipped them. He didn't just teach them, they watched him. He modeled it. Not in my notes again, but parents. I've learned this from Les. A lot more is caught than taught. So as much as some of us like to be blabby, my son and my daughter are gonna learn the most when they watch their dad live life. What are we modeling? Paul modeled this for Timothy. He taught Timothy this. Timothy heard him teach it to others, and then he watched, then he watched Paul live it. I'm sorry. Paul taught it. Paul taught it to Timothy. Paul taught it to others, and then Paul lived it out, and Timothy witnessed it. He heard it. He was a part of this. 1 Timothy 4.15, Paul writes, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. <laughs> I'll share it again even though it's not in my notes. <laughs> I remember years back teaching, and I, had, I started having folks in our fellowship come up to me after teaching, and of course, young buck that I'm out, I am, I'm like, cool, they wanna come for prayer, I'd love to pray with them. I'm ready to be a pastor. And they come up and they go, Jake, I just gotta tell you, it's been a pleasure to watch you grow as a teacher. What does that mean? <laughs> I remember the first time I taught here at the bridge, we were in the barn. I got some crazy earth-shattering news from my wife that uh, we were pregnant, like seconds before I went up to teach, so that's already in my head. And then my mic lapel fell off, hit the floor, and it broke up into a bunch of pieces. I'm like, who is this young guy that Rick is having teach? Who is he? This guy. But I believe the reason that I've been allowed to serve in this capacity up to this point is, has been because, like brothers and sisters have told me, my progress has become evident over time. Not that I've reached the goal, absolutely not. I have a long way to go. But that's come over time. It's come over time. Absorption takes time, like eating and digesting a meal. You'll see the effect of someone's diet 
over a span of time. Side note, don't look at me. <laughs> Timothy didn't just study, he soaked in it. He didn't just study, he soaked in it. I keep talking about soaking because quite frankly, it's something I was convicted with going about two, three weeks ago. Getting ready to teach last Sunday, I was struggling. I, God, I gotta give these people something. And he's like, why don't you just let me give you first? Of course, he actually doesn't talk to me like that. He goes really gently, Jacob, what God, I'm busy trying to teach your word. Can I talk to you? I don't have time. And then finally I come to the end of myself. I'm like, oh, woe is me. And he goes, are you ready to listen now? Yes. And then he starts to speak softly over me, powerful words of truth. And all of a sudden I'm revived. I'm comforted with his word and his spirit. If we will just listen and receive. 2 Timothy 4, 14, Paul writes to, to Timothy, however, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This was a, a, over a, a span of time. Side note here, he says from childhood you've known the sacred writings. We got a bunch of cute little boogers just up the hill here. And we got a bunch of us not a bunch, some of us, who are back there spending time with these kids. I cannot stress to you the incredible importance of pouring and investing God's truth and love into these little ones. Don't wait till they're teenagers. I've done youth ministry coming up on a decade, and so I've learned a thing or two, and it's broken my heart when I see some parents come to me who have come to me, and they go, what do we do with this? And inside, I never say this, but inside I go, I wish you would have started this same intentionality when they were two and three. That's the time. Don't wait till they're 12 and 13. Give it to them now. You would be impressed and wildly surprised by the spiritual receptivity of a little child's heart. That's why Jesus tells anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom of God, you got to be converted into a child in the heart. Not childish, but childlike, that you would come with a heart of humility receiving and trusting in your Father's words and provision for you. Paul says, i got to keep going on, Paul says here in 2 Timothy, look at 2 Timothy with me, verse 2, he finishes and says, entrust these to faithful men. The word entrust has two distinct pictures. First picture is the picture of presenting food. i got to take a drink really quick. I bet you guys are cooking out there. Thank you. Bear with me. We are going to wrap this up. The first picture is a picture of presenting food. Jesus gives us the word of God with the heart of a chef. I mentioned this last week at first service. Chefs don't want you to study and dissect and observe the meal. A good chef wants you to enjoy it and be filled by it. They take satisfaction in watching you get filled by it. And uh, I'm not tooting my horn, but I know how to cook. I started when I was pretty young, and some of our staff know that I know how to cook. And the reason I've learned how to cook and cook good food is because I've practiced it. And I practiced what worked and what tasted good. When people eat Jake's food, it tastes good. 
I don't care. You know what? This is my thing. I love to present it on a pretty plate, but at the end of the day, food is really good food when it tastes good and it smells good and it feels good. Right? Yeah. That's Jesus with his word. Like a chef, Jesus wants us to savor and taste his word. He wants us to chew and swallow it, digest and assimilate his word into ourselves, that his word would literally affect our beings and our daily lives. But remember, it takes time. Timothy has received these things over time. Jeremiah 15, 16, the weeping prophet says, your words were found and I ate them, Lord. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart because I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Do you know whose name you've been called by? I find it so amazing that Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet, because his life and his job was not an easy one, he says, your words became for me a joy. The word of God will fill up and stir you with joy so that even in the most painful, seemingly hopeless situations of life, you're going to have joy that runs deep and delight. But it says in the word, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So don't come asking God for the lusts of your flesh, but find your delight in God and he will fill you up with the holy desires of God and whatever is of God that you want of God, he's going to give you. Next point, what you present will be evidenced in what is produced. 1 Timothy 4.15 shows this as Paul tells Timothy, so that your progress will be evident to all. Timothy has been soaking in and nourishing himself on God's word and his spirit. He didn't follow Paul because Paul roped the moon. He went with Paul because Paul had what Timothy was looking for. God's word at work in his life, powerfully demonstrating himself by the spirit of God. Second depiction of the word in trust is a depiction of depositing. This is pretty cool. In Deuteronomy 14, 28, this is the law of Moses. God gave Moses the law to give Israel. It was like their constitution and how to be Israel, how to be God's holy chosen people. This is one of the things. He said, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year. Everything you've earned and worked for and accumulated, at the end of every third year, bring a tithe that is a tenth of it, and you shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, who represented the priestly class, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow, who are in your town, will come and eat and be satisfied, in order that, this is so cool, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. This is so radical. This was God's command to Israel in how to use what he had given them over time. In order to perform true spiritual worship that God would bless, it would be a blessing that was real and tangible. Their deposit fed the ministry of God's faithful, gave sustenance for the stranger, and provided for the impoverished. And what was the result? of this deposit, God kept on blessing them. 
Proverbs 16, 3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Again, it's not me coming with my lofty ideas saying, commanding God, you bless this. I'm your child, so you got to do what I, I say. Uh, I don't think so. It doesn't work in my house that way. My kids don't tell me what to do, but I love my kids and I'm looking for every opportunity to bless my kids. You better believe it. Take what you have. If you have been soaking in the spirit, nourishing on God's word, take what he's doing in you, present it to him, and then ask him, Lord, what do, what do you want to do? He will bless it. Your plans will be established and you won't wonder who you are or be confused with the purpose of your life. That's your next point. Your spiritual deposit determines destiny. That's true both of those who have believed in Christ and those who haven't yet. Reading God's word, I've heard, is like a deposit. One day, there will be a withdrawal. What are you depositing in your children? First and foremost, in you. Question. We're looking at the word entrust, right? What are you entrusting to others? And who are you entrusting them to? Paul continues to Timothy, to faithful men be able, able to teach. Jesus didn't put his hope and his confidence on his disciples. He knew ahead of time they're going to let him down. Which is why when they did leave him high and dry, he continued to go to the cross alone. Jesus' confidence was in the Father. I said it last week. I need to repeat it again. You cannot put your hope in the church. The church is not the one who saved you. We are used as an agent by God to draw people to God, but we don't save people. Jesus is the high priest. I will let you down. I'm looking over the crowd. Some of you have been here for years. Some of you are like, yeah, Jake's let me down. Let me tell you about it. You live with me long enough, you realize just how human I am. We all are. That's why we hang our hopes in Christ and Christ alone. So why did Jesus spend his time with 12, later on 11, and then again 12 again, apostles? Why? The word faithful doesn't mean someone you hope in, but someone you bring into your confidence. You don't trust in them, you bring them into your trust. John 15, 15, Jesus said to his guys, before he went to the cross, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all the things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give you. Jesus entrusted his guys because they had his spirit and his word to accomplish the work. So even when they messed up, he wasn't, he wasn't wrecked. He knew in time they're going to come around. Why? Because I have entrusted my word into their lives. Their spirit, my spirit is in them, and pretty soon I'm going to come upon them with empowerment with my spirit. Can't go wrong. Jesus, remember this, is the captain and completer of our faith, not us. Three ingredients for a leader. I learned this from my youth pastor. Or for that matter, anyone who you want to do work with or serve alongside. Faithful, available, and teachable. Throughout my time in ministry here, I've often seen two of the three, but it's hard to come by all three. 
There are a lot of people who make themselves available, but they're not always faithful. Or they're faithful and available, but they're not very teachable. Those are really hard because they show up and they're there. They make themselves available, but no matter how much you try and guide, they don't have what you're trying to give. If we forget about working together, if we are going to be usable by Christ, we have to always remain with the heart of a child. Faithful, available, and teachable. The disciples proved to be all three. How did Jesus know that, though? Aside from being God, like I said, Jesus equipped them. He knew them over time. There's no substitution for mileage. The longer I'm married with Cam, the more I see and, and have learned to know who Cam is and the character of my wife. There's no substitution for mileage. Paul's entrusted these things to Timothy because they have lived and they have served together. Timothy's progress was evident to Paul, like I've read from 1 Timothy 4. In like fashion, Paul had shown Timothy, by example, how to entrust these things. 2 Timothy 2.3, this is really quick, and then we're done. I promise. My students are like, yeah, whatever, Jake. I promise. I promise. Verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come and follow after me, he must or she must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Suffering isn't a quick thing. It's a long-haul thing that proves endurance. Jesus suffered. He took the pain and continued taking the pain to get to the end goal. He endured it. Hebrews 10, 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You know who your battle buddies are because they've proven their mettle with you. Not by winning every battle, but by continuing with you even if death is in sight. Jesus' apostles abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. But we would see later on and know from history, every single one of them died for the sake of suffering with their Savior. Horrible deaths, most of them. Heads lopped off, lit on fire, crucified upside down, skinned alive, and then, and then murdered. And they did it with joy because they watched Jesus do it. And he poured himself into them, and they absorbed what he gave them. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots, mud pots, which aren't very strong, pretty fragile. You, you, you drop it and they break. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You and I have the life of God because Jesus died. And if we receive him the way he's given himself to us, we take up our cross and follow that example so that others may be drawn close to God and receive his life because they watch the life of Christ compel us to die for the sake of others so that Jesus would be glorified. It's interesting. He talks about the body. Pastor Les talked about this in communion. It's not just my body. It's the body. So here, in closing, 
put on God's divine gift of ability by living in him, word, and spirit. Let's finish. I'll, you can close your Bibles if you want. I'm just going to read this to you. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure, there it is again, hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, because I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, in the future there is laid up for me, granted, Paul's talking about the future, and he's on death row. And death row in Roman times wasn't like death row in the United States these days. It's quick. It's expedient. And it did. It did come once he was finally <laughs> convicted of having allegiance to Jesus as the king and not Caesar. He said, in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We live in these dark days now. But, like good soldiers, in order to take hold of the victor's crown, we have to endure the cross with Christ first. And if with Christ, we do it in his strength. Would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to read a few verses and then pray. Think about these as I read them. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 31.24, be strong and let your heart take courage. All who hope in the Lord. Psalm 27.14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. With your eyes closed, if there is anyone here who is realizing that they don't have hope for their future because they haven't put their future in Jesus' hands, if that is you, I urge you to strongly consider changing that destiny today and deposit your life in Christ's hands because he is able to guard whatever you entrust to him, first and foremost, your own life. And for those, the rest of us here, Jesus, I pray, God, that you would help us put you on, be strong in your grace. I pray that you would continue to stir, mature, and raise up a generation here at the bridge that will be people devoted to your word, in your spirit, because of your love for us and so our love for each other. Lord, strengthen us for these times so that the world that lives around us will see the love we have for one another and know that you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who brings life to all who would trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.